And so limiting beliefs helps push you back into comfort, into things that you know. And I think that if you have the desire to grow, you need to be aware of your limiting beliefs. And when you hear them come up, that's your cue that you're heading in the right direction. And there's growth and progress that happens on the other side of that. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate, from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a minute to rate us and do not forget to like and follow along with me on social media as well. So this month, I'm giving away the Thought Leadership Planning Guide and Tracker. This document is going to help you establish yourself as a thought leader in the multifamily space so you can raise capital for your deals. You can monitor and hold yourself accountable and build out your own thought leadership platform. You can find the document at www.elliperlman.com. Under the menu option, you need to go to free resources and you'll see the guide right there. All right, so today my guest is J.P. Albano. He's the founding principal of Refresh Realty Group. J.P. focuses on acquiring multifamily assets with high value add opportunities in Texas and Georgia, which are two of our markets as well. And prior to starting Refresh Realty Group, J.P. worked as an enterprise account manager for a technology reseller in New York. JP holds a Bachelor of Science from the Vrie University. Hey, I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Welcome, JP. Thank you, Ellie. I appreciate the opportunity here. I'm looking forward to catching up with you here. All right, perfect. So why don't we start by just telling us how you know you got started in real estate and, and give us some more, you know, a little bit more information about your background. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. So uh, as a sales guy, right, in the Northeast, got used to a very comfortable lifestyle being in sales for about 10 years and building a good book of business. After a number of years, I started to get the itch. You know, I think a lot of people leave their jobs because they aren't challenged anymore, right? Or they, they need another opportunity to grow. And I was kind of reaching that, that glass ceiling. And so it caused me to kind of look at my life and say, all right, what's the next chapter look like? You know, you kind of grow up listening and hearing about the ideal way of, of building income for yourself through passive income, right? What does that look like? Is it a website or is it starting a business? And kind of researching those different avenues. And it led me to real estate. And as, as you know, and I'm sure as a lot of listeners know, there's a lot of different aspects of real estate where you can make money, right? So I started down, I think, the path that most people do. You, you find biggerpockets.com and you spend a lot of time just absorbing as much as you can. And I was reading books. I was, remember starting listening to, to shows about notes investing, which is really interesting. I like the, the concept of not having to manage and toilets, but being the bank, that was really cool. But on bigger pockets, you know, one of the things that, that the guys talk about was their, their Burr strategy, where you buy a single family house for 
decent amount of money, you rehab it, you rent it out and you refinance the money, right? And you roll it into the next thing and you do this over and over and over again. I remember one day sitting on my couch and I was, I got the, I got this printout of their birth strategy and it was like their five-year plan or 10-year plan, whatever it was, maybe I'm, I'm making that up, but it had a picture of all these homes. And then at the end of, of, of the page was a big apartment. And I'm like, wow, why didn't I just start with the apartment now instead of doing that for the five or 10 years? And so that's kind of where I redirected myself into the multifamily world. And I remember getting my hands on Dave Lindahl's book. I think it was Emerging Markets. And if you haven't read that book, it's a really good book if you're either new in real estate or new in multifamily. What I liked about that book was it just kind of laid out the whole picture for you on why multifamily is so awesome. Right. And I'm rich to the choir here. Like, I know you kind of get it. Oh, but yes. for, for <laughs> me at the time, like that was really like eye opening. I think I, I read to that book kind of front to, to, to back. And then my next challenge was just try to figure out how I get the skills that I need to go after a property, you know, not knowing how to underwrite and not knowing how to talk to brokers and, and that whole gag. But, but that's kind of really what set me off in the direction, you know, figuring out what is the next chapter of my life? What does it look like? And it was the decision to, to start a real estate business specifically around multifamily. And then, you know, and all of the challenges that came along with getting to the next level beyond that. But that's how it started. That's very interesting. And how long was it? How long ago? So that's coming up, I think, on three or four years from now. I've been so heads down on the multifamily side that I'm almost going to lose track. And I have to think about what year that was. I think it was like 2016 or so when I kind of started the, the, the journey there. And it's, it's been wonderful. It's been really, really rewarding and like exciting to work in an industry where I get to speak with people like you where you're like, yeah, let's get on a call here and let's talk. And on my, in my sales life, it was different. You know, you're chasing customers down. It's like, Hey, Mr. Customer, talk to me. Mm -hmm. and you can, no one wants yeah. to talk to you. So it's rewarding to have that flipped around like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that, you know, now you're, you're an investor. Are you working with other investors or all of your investments are done only with your cash, with your capital? It's a mix. I'm, I'm thankful and grateful to have the opportunity to have experience doing a lot of different sides of this, right? There's the being a passive investor in someone else's deal. Check that. Taking stewardship of someone else's money as a passive investor or be the active investor, rather, take someone's passive money and manage that, done that. And then also have my money involved in my own deals as well, I think gives me a good perspective on what it's like to be on the other, you know, when the shoe's on the other foot. Mm -hmm. And also kind of gives you some, I don't know, just uh, overall experience that you can talk to people with empathy about understanding what it's like to be like, okay, here's, here's money that I work really hard to save. Mm -hmm. And you're going to do a really good job of that, right? And, you know, being the guy that says, yeah, sure. And then you're, you're side of the table. I understand. Yeah. yeah. All, all kind of all aspects of that. I want to ask you as a passive investor, what are you doing today, you know, given the, you know, pandemic situation that we're all aware of, you know, I've been having the same conversation with, you know, multiple sponsors and investors about what they actively do to protect their assets from COVID-19 from the impact. But I'm actually curious to hear from you. And I know a lot of the listeners that are passive investors would be interested in hearing the, you know, your answer to the, to the question, which is basically, what do you or can you do what you should do or can do as a passive investor? Now that you've invested 50, 100, 200 K with someone else, basically they're active. They're taking the lead on protecting the investment, but what can you do? to protect yourself and what you should be doing moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. That's an interesting 
perspective to ask the question on. So I think one of the things is if you haven't done so already, reach out to the deal sponsor who is the financial or the fiduciary for your money and ask them what have they done? What are they planning on doing? Not that we're late in the game here, but we're in the beginning of new month here. And I could speak on, on my existing properties. We've been very, very active and proactive with reaching out to our, our tenant base and communicating with them. But if you're a past investor, reach out to your deal sponsors and say, hey, let's get on a call. Help me understand where things are at. What are collections looking like? Have you been in touch with all of the people that live in our communities? Yes. No, if not, when, when are you planning on talking to them? Really just get a good sense of, do they have a handle on what's going on? And I think the biggest thing is making sure that the people that are running the properties are in communication, a constant kind of communication and almost like a, a constructive dialogue with the people that live there. It can't be this combative thing. That doesn't work for anybody. It's got to be a constructive dialogue. And one of the things that I took away and that I've been implementing in my properties is this idea that, hey, we're going to get, we, my, the people that live in my community and myself, we want to get through this together, right? What does it look like on the other side of this, this problem that we have right now? So, you know, assuming that you still want to be here, we want us to have a relationship together. What does that look like? What can we do now to get on the other side? What does that relationship look like? So it's kind of a combination of those things, making sure that you feel comfortable that the people that have your money seem like they know what they're doing and that they're having a dialogue with the, te- with the tenants there. And if they're not, that's a different story. What can you do then if you feel that it's, if you don't feel comfortable with the answers you're, you're getting as a passive investor, is there something you can do at this point? Well, so that's a good question. And I think it depends on the deal arrangement that you're signed into, right? Maybe reaching out to the property management organization that's, that's managing the properties, whether that's a third-party property manager or non-site, depends on the size of the deal, of course, and get in a dialogue with them and see where they're at it. Because there's a, a lot of aspects to all deals. These deals can be big enough where they have on-site property management. They could be third-party. There's a variety of arts there. So not that I want to say it depends. I hate that answer, but kind of depends on the situation a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. I think, you know, probably, you know, a lot of sponsors have been working very, very hard to make sure that they collect as much money as they can. You know, some of us are pretty much limited by, you know, what we can do because if you've taken agency debt, you, you can't really evict anyone for 120 days, regardless of whether they lost their job. So that was very unexpected. But yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Here's the next thing, yeah. right? What happens after 120 days? What's that backlog going to look like? N- nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. Is there going to be another piece of legislation that will, you know, prolong that period? Is, you know, I, I just don't know. It's crazy. But I, I, I am a believer that we will get over this at some point in time, whether that's going to be three months, six months, eight months, I don't know, but there, there will be life at the end of this. At some point yes, in time. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But let's talk a little bit about strategy. And I want to focus on overcoming limiting beliefs in a financial crisis. Can you talk to me about limiting beliefs when it comes to investing in real estate and especially during a financial or any other crisis? Yeah, yeah. So in general, as a person, I'm pretty much a very optimistic, abundance mindset sort of guy, right? And I don't, I don't like that to come across as like, all right, everything is rose-colored glasses sort of thing, right? I like to look at it as like, there's opportunities everywhere, and yes, Right now, we've got problems. We've got health problems. We have 
people aren't working problems and that, that leads to whole other sort of problems from a society standpoint and as far as like overall confidence for people and people that are working class families that are struggling, that were struggling to make ends meet and now are pretty much sidelined and they really can't work. And then what kind of problems that's going to create for their family and all that stuff. But I look at this as, as really an incredible opportunity. You know, as an investor, right, we should be looking, we're entrepreneurs, we should be looking at opportunities. And this is the opportunity I feel like that we've been waiting for for the last, since 2008 or so. What I'm seeing is that more and more deals are falling on the floor, falling off the table, as they say, because of, over the last couple of weeks because of, of COVID, there was a lot of uncertainty from the people that were trying to buy and they didn't know what to do, so they just pulled the parachute. I'm seeing more forgiveness on the side of the sellers. Some sellers, they're slowly realizing that the market has shifted from the seller's market to the buyer's market. Some, it depends on the market too. I'm seeing the brokers also reluctantly agree or admit that, okay, things are changing a little bit. And I'm seeing, from my perspective, maybe less competition because there's less groups going after the same deal. You know, and I, I look at deals in Atlanta and as you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy market. Well, it was a crazy market. Oh yeah. It's, it's a little less crazy because there's less people, you know, swimming around looking for deals. But it's opening up opportunities. And, you know, as, as people like us, they're looking for good deals. I feel like this is the time. And there's a, there's a small window there to do that before we get back on the track of normal, or at least have a sense of when normal will return. Because right now, there's a lot of uncertainty, and we're not even sure when we'll even get to normal. But I feel like we're getting a better picture of that. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to take probably about at least 30 more days until we know the collections of May to kind of really understand because April collections can give us a partial, you know, picture of what's happening. Maybe if unemployment increases, then May, I think May is going to be the main kind of, you know, indication, which doesn't mean we shouldn't be pursuing deals because we don't have to close before we see May financials and we can adjust the price accordingly. And you were talking, you're absolutely right. There are much, you know, fewer sellers right now. What are kind of limiting beliefs do you think buyers and passive investors have right now when they're trying to decide whether they want to purchase deals? I think there's a couple of things and it depends on their existing experience in real estate. And I, I feel like when these sort of stock market crashes happen, depending on how recent or how much it affects investors, they're either, sometimes they finally, it takes something like this for them to get it right? For example, limiting belief is I'm not sure about housing. What happened in 2008? Am I going to lose my money you know, because of the housing crisis sort of thing? And now here we go. You know, If you had all your money in the stock market and you weren't careful with it, you could have taken a, a big hit there. And now you won't have you know, any dry powder to put it into you know, this great opportunity that we have now in real estate. You know, also worrying about what happens in, in maybe in the housing world, for a single family, that that's going to be the same thing for multifamily. And it's, while it is housing, yes, the dynamics are a little different. So there's potentially some limiting beliefs that can get in the way of well, what I see happening in my single family house will happen in this multifamily world too. I don't think that's a one-to-one -one correlation. What do you think people can do, and investors specifically, to get rid of limiting beliefs? You got some good questions. <laughs> I'll speak from personal experience. That's, that's the best thing I can do. So what I, what I found to help me get rid of my limiting beliefs is mostly just being aware of the chatter, the monkey mind, you know, the, the, the back talk that goes on in your head. And I don't know if a lot of people are, 
are aware of that unless you kind of call it out like, hey, think about and listen to the sorts of things that you tell yourself, whether it's a negative thing or a positive thing or just an observation. There was an interesting book I read called The War of Art. That helped me understand that like we're wired to stay out of being uncomfortable, right? Like that's how we're all programmed. We don't like having uncomfortable conversations. We don't like having uncomfortable thoughts, any of those things. And so limiting beliefs helps push you back into comfort, into things that you know. And I think that if you have the desire to grow, you need to be aware of your limiting beliefs. And when you hear them come up, that's your cue that you're heading in the right direction. And there's growth and progress that happens on the other side of that. So I think keeping that in mind is what is going to help people to kind of get over the limiting beliefs. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And that's, I think it's almost 75% of the process of getting out of limiting beliefs. You know, for me, it's when I was comfortable, it was so uncomfortable for me. And that's why, you know, the tech, I had a great tech job, but it was so comfortable that it was, it just felt wrong. You know, it's, it's just, yeah. And that took some training to, to cause you to be uncomfortable with your comfort. Yeah, because it felt like I'm not making a progress. It felt like it was it was not that I wasn't growing. So it feels like you're you're standing in, in one place the entire time and, and there's so much more you can do. Let me ask you a few questions about the process of actually going big in a crisis. I know you're you're a big believer on going big and starting like you said, you know, I saw all the different stages and I said I'm going to start from the end, which was you know, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, no, it was brave, but it was brilliant. But I want to hear from your perspective, why is going big easier or better than going slow? I think that there's a couple of parts to that. There's coming down to your limiting beliefs of like comfort. You know, I, I run into a lot of people all the time where they're like, yeah, I'm going to get into multifamily. I'm going to buy a duplex. And that's okay for some people. I don't want to poo-poo everybody. But you know, why, right? It's like, well, I, I don't want to lose anyone's money and I want to learn my lesson. And the, the truth is the dynamics of a duplex and a 15 unit and a 30 unit and a 60 unit, they're completely different. The underwriting is different. Everything, operations is different. Everything is different about that. There's still going to be a learning curve right? Why not accelerate your goals and your ambitions and start with the bigger thing? Because you're still going to have to learn things. It's going to be uncomfortable. Just start with the big thing with more reward. What I found was that, and I think most people would agree with this, is that it's still the same amount of work, whether you're doing a 20 unit or a 40 unit or a 60 unit or a 300 unit. It's the same amount of work to close it, to underwrite it practically. The inspections will take longer, but for the most part, it's still the same amount of effort. The, the rewards are so much greater when you go with the bigger property. Now, in my experience, it's been harder to get those bigger properties because the competition's a lot fiercer, but the reward is, is that much greater and it's more fun, right? And plus, the other part that I found too was, was that you have more cushion for error on the bigger properties. You know, I have, I have a 12 unit and, you know, two vacancies is, is a big percentage hit on, on a 12 unit, but on a 60 unit that we have, two vacancies, yes, it's important, but it's not really going to screw things up that much in the grand scheme of things. So especially when you're new, if you can partner up with or get involved with the team that is going after bigger properties that your company or you're not used to going after, they just provide so many more benefits than starting small. Right. No one starts yeah. small. Go big. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that going big for someone who's starting now or, or started recently, that going big could be could take longer or could be harder now that we're in the middle of a uh, pandemic? It's an interesting time if you're just getting started in real estate because I think for a lot of people where they got started in the last 
two or three years, they had a chance, they had a runway to kind of get up to speed with how this whole game works. And if you just decided to go into real estate two months ago or a month ago, I don't think you've, you have all the background that you need to really you know, go after a deal and take it down with the requisite knowledge that you would need, right? So I almost feel like you might have a hard time, potentially, let me believe, of getting into a deal now while it's a good opportunity from a market shifting standpoint, right? So maybe it might take until the next cycle. What do you think that someone who's starting should do? And, and that's you know the same for someone who wants to learn how to become a syndicator and also someone who is a passive investor and is you know, they just took their money out of the stock market and they're looking to start investing in real estate passively. What would you say to those two type of investors if they want to scale, they want to go big, but they, they're just starting now? I understand, you know, like you said, it's, it's a little bit more challenging, but what can they do so, you know, to make sure that they can invest and feel comfortable. So they're not so. wasting time. Yeah. So if you're a passive investor and you want to put your money in a deal somewhere, now is a great time to, depending on how you got started or turned on to multifamily, maybe it's a friends and family that were involved in a deal somewhere, you know, ask for an introduction to their deal sponsor and, and ask how they're doing and also attend any, well, you can't even do meetups now because everything's banned now. You could start listening to podcasts or listen to Ellie's show and go listen to other deal sponsors that you maybe vibe with and reach out to them on their website. Talk to them about what sort of deals they're doing. If you're, because my other suggestion was going to be go to a real estate meetup, but those are not really going on right now. Yeah, go back and listen to some podcasts and make some notes on some some deal sponsors that you kind of get along with their personalities and their, their ethics. That's really important. And then if you're an active investor and you want to start doing your own deals and sponsoring, I think now is the time to partner because of that learning curve I talked about. Try to find someone that's already doing it that you can add significant value to their life. Maybe you're good at marketing, maybe they're not, and you can help them with that. Maybe you're good at social media and they're not, help them with that. Maybe you can be boots in the ground, but just start finding a way to add value to someone's life and get involved in a deal that way. That will definitely shortcut your process and your learning curve. And don't be greedy. Anything that you can get to be part of a deal is, is worth its weight in gold. Whether it's experience or just networking, it's all valuable. Don't get hung up on the dollars. All right. Well, great advice. Thank you, JP. We actually have a few more minutes for our lightning round questions. Are you ready? I am. Fire. All right. Let's start. JP, what's your favorite hobby? Oof. Detailing cars. If you can't tell behind me, I'm a... BMW guy for many, many years, and I love spending time, quality time, one-on-one -on -one time detailing my, uh, my collection. Nice. I love cars also. What's your favorite car? Currently, it's probably torn between my E46 M3 and my E39 Dynan S2 M5. All right. All right. Impressive. What's the one thing that people don't know about you? After they ju they've just learned that you're, oh, I that, that you love cars. <laughs> no one knows this one. So when I was eight years old, nine years old, I was an extra in the movie Child's Play Two. Wow. And so okay. if you watch it, if you watch it, if you you know get on Amazon or whatever, there's a scene where Chucky pulls the fire alarm, and Andy, the kid, is, is in an orphanage. He's kind of going down the stairs. So they pull the fire alarm, and there's like six or seven kids before Andy coming down, and I'm one of them that's like a sleepily trotting down the steps and you can see this version of my face from 30 years ago. <laughs> All right. What do you wish that you had known when you started out? Oof. You know what? I don't think anything. I think everything is kind of there for a reason and it's been an, 
the journey's been exciting because I feel like if you if you knew it was coming, it kind of sucks the fun out of it. So I'm amazed at the constant like surprises that happen, you know, deals that fall into my lap or connections that I make. I'm like, this is a, where is this coming from sort of thing. So I wouldn't change anything. All right, perfect. We're almost there. We have two more questions. So JP, what's your number one advice for investors who want to scale their business or scale their portfolio? I think it's a matter of getting in touch with deal sponsors. If you're going to be a past investor, get in touch with deal sponsors that you get along with, you share your same core values and ethics with, and understanding you know where they are in their trajectory, in their career trajectory. What does their deal flow look like? And then maybe diversify that a little bit. I think that's probably the best way of growing and scaling and getting involved in, in maybe a handful of markets that you otherwise wouldn't do. Maybe just being open to investing in real estate that maybe isn't in your backyard. Right? I know some people are like, no, I got to see it. I got to touch it. Maybe that doesn't work out for the best yeah. in the long run, right? Be open, be flexible. Yeah, love it. All right, JP, where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? You can check me out at jpalbano.com. That's J-P-A-L-B as in boy, A-N-O.com. All right, JP, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your insights with me and my listeners. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Stay safe. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.